honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello and welcome everybody to the the best panel you'll hear all weekend, I think. But unlike most of you guys, we have not taken the time or liberty to really stretch and warm up like you guys have. So I'm going to start by letting everybody introduce themselves and kind of give you guys more context as to their business, their brand, how they got started with it. So if you guys just for this instance want to go down the line, introduce yourselves, what you do, your business. All right. Uh, I'm Jesse DePinto, uh, co-founder of Front Desk. Uh, we're a three-year-old uh, tech uh, travel company based out of Milwaukee. Uh, we run short-term rental, vacation rental apartments across the country, 20 cities, uh, 80 employees, and uh, now we're building the OS that ran our uh, vacation rental business so other people can run their own vacation rental business. Uh, and I haven't stretched yet or, or warmed up, so I'm kind of jealous after watching all you guys. How'd you get started? I'm going to moderate for you, did. Don't, don't do my jab, Jackie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm Jackie Hermes, the CEO of Excelity. We work with B2B software startups to help them get to revenue and grow faster. This is actually my second company. First one was a vegan cookie company, which is very, very different. And we've been around for six years, the agency hub. That's amazing. So my name is Yanni Tuami, and I'm a co-founder of a company called Microdrop. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is about branding. And I'm focused on our product, which is, I'm aware, building health awareness to conditions uh, such as celiac disease to cardiovascular disease through at-home small-volume blood testing. Uh, we've been around for about three years, but really just launched our brand in December. And I'm looking forward to talking with everybody about what they've seen, what they've seen work and not work. Um, so take it away. And I'll let Rodrigo. Hi, I'm Gabriella Salig. I'm the president of the Marquette Blockchain Lab. We are a two-year-old startup tech company that focuses on promoting the adoption of blockchain technology. We've hosted two conferences, the Milwaukee Blockchain, Partner, uh, blockchain Conference in partnership with Northwestern Mutual. Um, I also have started the organization called the Young Innovators through the Miss America organization. And through that, I've been promoting uh, entrepreneurship and business development and in the curriculum of, uh, in high schools. So making sure that high schoolers know that they have resources so they can start their own companies and you know, be on stage like we are here today. Wonderful. Thank you, everybody. So I think what initially is something about business that people don't tell you is that struggle can come from anywhere. So if anybody wants to take it away, what was your initial first struggle when you were trying to either build your business or grow your brand? When I started a cookie company, everyone was like, you're going to fail. Pretty much no one. I mean, starting a company in the food industry is very difficult. And by the time I started the second business, I had already proven that I could you know, run a company and grow a business. But it's really hard when you first get started. You're young. I was in my, gosh, I was 24, 25 when I started. And so, you know, I think people doubt you when you first get started. Yeah, 100%. So I'm not a doctor, but I'm co-founding a healthcare company. So 
um, we onboarded 12 medical doctors to bring that credence and credibility to our product. And still, people are like, well, what do you know about healthcare? And so I tell them that I come at it from a patient perspective. Um, I have been sick and I am healthy and those are aspects of healthcare. So I think I'm just as qualified to speak about how to help other people stay healthy with an at-home testing company. So kind of having that confidence and really working through your own self-doubts, especially in those early days, is one of the things that uh, I can't say enough of when I talk to other entrepreneurs, just sticking through and believing in what you want to do and how you want to help. Uh, I'll go, I'll say uh, it's it's pretty simple, it was pretty simple for me about just time. You don't only have so many hours in the day uh, and getting that, that time to free yourself up to do something, uh, especially if you have a family, you're required to pull in ends meet, um, just being able to either forego sleep, forego a social life, uh, forego your pride and, and uh, take, put your career on hold, uh, just, just having enough time and, and something has to sacrifice with that. But also just continuing. So, you know, I guess it depends on if you talk about starting a company or starting the entrepreneurship journey. But I've been on this entrepreneurship journey for 10 years and, and I still don't have enough time. And, and so time is a big thing, whether you're talking in years or, or hours in a day. Don't forego sleep. It's a bad idea. I'll tell you firsthand. Yeah, for, for me, it was also a big learning curve. I study philosophy and political science. And, you know, I. Three years ago, I would have never imagined to be in the tech industry. Um, but what's what's really interesting is finding taking things from your background. So obviously, I studied philosophy, and I also have been involved in healthcare um, for three years. Finding ways to pull kind of your background and what you're studying and um, what you're pursuing into your new business venture, and finding ways that you can apply apply that to your company. What I love about this panel is that we are generally a younger panel. So what was difficult with age being such a pretty hard business topic of credibility to grow your businesses or your brand's credibility in order to succeed? I, I think uh, as an entrepreneur, you have to be a great salesperson and you have, to, you have to sell everybody you talk to, whether it's a potential employee, an investor, uh, a customer, uh, co-founders, uh, and, and people are smart. So you, you have to either uh, sell really well and, and oversell your, your abilities or grow your abilities or, or something about um, trying to sell. So especially with you know age in the workplace, you know I grew a beard in my 20s to try to look older than I was. You know, so. I did the same thing. It works out really well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know there, there's tricks, but at the end of the day, um, you you got to be confident in yourself and and, and be able to sell. Uh, and, and age is hard. <laughs> you have to convince people twice your age why they should follow you and put their career on hold. Uh, even though you probably don't even know what you're talking about and you've never worked a day in corporate life in your corporate world in your life. Um, coming out of college, that, that was the biggest. What have you done to do that? What changes have you made in order to have that credibility? What was those first steps? Uh, well, I, fa I failed for many years <laughs> until I raised that credibility. Um, and then it, it's one person at a time. I mean, every, every step along the way, you, you maybe make an impact on one person and then that person could come back four years later. My co-founder now, Kyle Weatherly, uh, he had an exit, and, and I got, I, he was one of my customers at a previous startup. I didn't know that by impressing him and delivering a product, uh, I was going to be able to partner with uh, so, uh, such a successful entrepreneur in Milwaukee. Uh, but, you know, the, every impact you have with somebody, you never know when it's going to come back to you. 
I remember selling my first client and thinking, why does this person trust me? Like, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. And honestly, years later now, we have a team of 15, 16, uh, and I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I think, I mean, we're getting into the imposter syndrome question a little bit more. I actually was just going to get into that. So if you want to take it, like, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it is convincing one person at a time, and then it's, I've always said, show your worth through your work. So make your end product really, really good, be it a product, a service, whatever it is. And you will show people that you're worth paying and that you know what you're doing um, by the product of your work. Adding to that sales uh, angle that you were talking about, I think sales has to be authentic. So when you're going out there and pitching these one people at a time, it's actually not selling them. It's actually just speaking about something you believe in so intrinsically that the sales job happens naturally. Um, So we started by getting one doctor on board with our medical advisory team, and that took like three months. The second doctor took six weeks. The third doctor took a week, and now they call us wanting to join our panel. But that first one was really, really hard. But what I learned out of that was I was learning and crafting my story as I went. The belief was always there, but I got better at selling and telling the story. So... Don't be afraid to go out and just say your story, base it in a passion belief, and you'll get really good at telling the story as it goes, and therefore selling your story as it goes. Yeah, that's, that's something, you know, as I've been with the program, the Young Innovators, talking to high school students who have all of these great ideas and they want to start businesses, that's the biggest question that they ask, you know, how do I get in the door? I'm 18, I'm 17 years old. Um, I, I would say the biggest thing that helped me was surrounding myself with, with a network and building that credibility, but also, you know, surrounding yourself with people that you can leverage and, you know, you can build on your own expertise in the industry. Um, that's, I think, something that I've, I've uh, you know, been equipping those high school students, but just surround yourself with people um, in the industry and, and you're going to make it. How do you sell yourself, Eric? Story. I'm not about to make this a storytelling panel, but I think for us it's documenting. So. When you start out, you have day one, and that story will take on forever. So it isn't just, I did this one thing in this one moment. It's what led up to it, what am I doing because of it? So it's all all of that overarching story that you share with the world. And obviously, most people know me from LinkedIn, and that's where I document my world. So that's always been critical for me and for us as a company to just share what we're going through every day so that when we do sit down for the first meeting, it isn't a matter of, getting to know each other, I cannot tell you how many times, and maybe you guys have experienced as well, I've gotten a, I feel like I know you really, really well the first time I meet somebody because they see my face five times a week on LinkedIn talking about my life, my business, my journey, what I'm going through, what I'm struggling with. All of these things that while, you know, 80s mentality is kind of hush-hush on a lot of that, you should really bring that out and really bring that connection with the people that you're trying to reach and trying to meet so that you can succeed in that relationship. I'll, I'll touch on one of his points, uh, similar to yours too, about authenticity. Um, again, people are smart. Uh, they're gonna, the, there's a fine line between fake it till you make it and, and straight up lying to people. Um, uh, you know, you do need to, to some extent, look like you're bigger than you are as a company. Uh, you know, you need to, whether it's having a, a dial tone on your phone line or, or something like that. Um, those things are, are necessary, but at the same time, when you're, I mean, employees and, and early co-founders and early employees and leaders. Um, that's a big thing where where they're going to understand they 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 have they're wired in their subconscious brain to to understand if you're being genuine or not. 
Um, and, and that comes out transparently. And th there might be one thing that you do that's just slightly wrong, and it just bugs them, and, and that relationship is ruined. Um, so at the end of the day, being, you know, the, I think maybe fake it till you make it works kind of to a certain extent in industry and with competitors, or sorry, uh, competitors and customers, but in the, you know, human team building aspect, um, you gotta just be honest and say, hey look, this is uh, two guys in a garage, and we don't know if this company's gonna go out of business tomorrow, uh, but here's what we think is really cool, and, uh, and I think people follow that authenticity, and, and they appreciate the, uh, the candor, uh, I think. How do you drive that level of authenticity with your employees? Uh, in the interview. <laughs> so um, it all starts when you first meet them and you first set the expectations. So before we even hire them in the door, uh, I, I, the one thing I've learned with interviewing uh, over the past three years at Front Desk is um, spend at least five or ten minutes telling everybody what is great about the job, potentially, and what sucks about the job. And, and you, you're, you're telling them straight up, and then it makes it so much easier once they get hired on to, to drive them to those high expectations. Because you could say, look, you could have not taken the job. I told you this in the interview. Um, but the time to talk about that is not after they already get hired. You want to let them make an informed decision. Uh, and so for me, it's all about setting expectations day one uh, in the, or before day one in the, in the interview. That uh, culture story starts when you shake their hand uh, at that first interview to me as well. You start telling the mission, what drives everybody who's at the company today, what you hope they can bring to the table as part of that mission, and get them in, you know, really excited about being a part of it. And then the rest starts to just unfold afterwards. Two examples specifically, Yanni, I know that you're hosting a product that is very unknown to the rest of the world. And Jackie, you've always told us you don't have a business until you have something to sell. So how do you find whether it's an obscure product that is new to the world or something that everybody else does? We do video, it's not necessarily a new concept. How do you find that product in, or price point and how do you broadcast that to the world? That has been hard and I've often done B2B prior to this. So in this B2B, B2C space, um, I've had to lean on a lot of partners and influencers and bloggers and those that already have trust with communities of people. Um, and we actually started our first test for celiac disease, probably one of the least known conditions out there. So we really started with this small community of people, but we just went out and kind of acquired one customer at a time. Uh, I was traveling all over the nation going to gluten-free expos and healthcare festivals and talking to people and trying to learn what were their struggles in getting diagnosed. I learned that a lot of people can't afford uh, or have high copays. So we said, we got to bring these tests under 100 bucks. That was one of the first learnings we did. And our community of people told us that. And then uh, from there, we started to sell a few kits, started getting people tested and diagnosed. And they took it away and put it on social media and started telling our story. So by kind of transferring my passion to them, they started transferring that passion to their people and followers and communities and friends. And so a lot of our organic growth has become as a result of our current customer base. And so all I can say is keep going back to that authentic tone, um, make sure people really believe in what you're doing and they'll start selling you for you. Well, you can test and sell before you even have a product too, or a service. Like how many of you guys saw John Zeraski yesterday or have read his book Sprint? I mean, the entire premise of the book is that what they run through Google Ventures and it's five days to duct tape a product together that doesn't actually even exist 
and then go and test it and see how the market reacts to it. Most founders or people that want to found a company that I talk to should have started a year ago. You know, like they do so much prep work and they have so many plans and they have their website and business cards and stuff that you don't even need. Honestly, like I started selling my services with two writing samples. That's it. And it's turned into an agency that employs a lot of people. We're building a new office. We're still hiring. But I just, I mean, and I'm also like a jump and then think kind of person, <laughs> um, which has served me well and has not in some cases. So I think it's a, a decision everyone makes on their own. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. We found a lot of uh, uh, a good fortune using online marketplaces, like Airbnb in our example, to get our product out there. Um, the whole first year of business, uh, uh, we, we ended up having 40 units uh, around the country um, based on just using Airbnb as our sole channel. So that meant that we didn't have to come up with a brand, we didn't have to come up with a marketing pitch. We're just tapping into an existing online um, channel that everybody already uses today. Same thing with Amazon. Everybody wants to build the Amazons and the Airbnbs and build that two-sided marketplace potentially. Um, that's a hard business. and. and uh, and you can you can certainly do that, but uh, what I at least personally prefer is the uh, lower risk, uh, potentially lower reward. But uh, I don't need to be a gajillionaire like like Zuckerberg. It doesn't seem like a great life anyway that he's living. Um, I'd rather be a supplier on those massive marketplaces um, that keeps those marketplaces moving. Um, so it, you get so much product feedback. To Jackie's point: um, just go, go on Amazon, read three reviews of other products, and say I'll do this better. Um, or going to, you know, uh, you can really get your product out there, get some cash flow going, um, and, and start building that flywheel effect um, by tapping into, uh, you know, online marketplaces. So that, that's what's changed, I think, in today's day and age. Um, if we're not, you know, if you're not a great salesperson like me, and, and you need, uh, you're not great at branding or marketing, uh, it, it's a good shortcut. Uh, we at least found helpful. Yeah, one point I'll make, and I've heard it from a few of you, is, uh, you just have to move fast. If you have an idea, don't sit on it. I think that's something that I've done in the past. Um, uh, really sat and focused on the idea and um, just just go out there, talk to people, especially if you're in an industry that's rapidly moving. Uh, you know, someone can, can launch the company that you were thinking about launching next week. So just move quickly, I think, is something that's critical. I wish I had met you, Jackie, two years ago because we sat and kind of succumbed to that very nature of making it perfect. We're like, we're going up against these big healthcare companies and we have to have a product. We have to have a website. We have to have professionalism. We have to have business cards. Who even uses those? And I, and I really wish that uh, we had gone out publicly a year earlier and just started talking about it and broadcasting it and documenting it on social. Um, I'm, not that I'm regretting it, but I could see the value looking back and so, yeah, every entrepreneur should start their company and make it public, uh, publicly known a year earlier than they think they should. Yeah, we have a, well, a prospective client, an old prospective client that worked on their product on the side for five years and built the perfect product. And during that time, they allowed their competitors to come into the marketplace and take the market from them. Um, so it's, I've seen it time and time again, especially working with software companies. If you don't move fast, you can have that market taken from you in a second. I want to start at the far end. You had mentioned you had gone through PolySci, correct? How do you know when you when you get that degree and you go through all that process and you don't oh, want to throw I, it away? I'm still at Marquette, so I'm still, still, okay, still mm -hmm. okay, still are. So how do you not stay embedded in 
whatever you got your degree. And I went to school for graphic design, definitely not doing graphic design today. So how do you let yourself explore? Don't listen to people who are telling you you're not going in the right direction. Um, you know, I, I do study political science and philosophy, and that's such a big passion of mine. Um, but I think I will end up in business and entrepreneurship. You know, that's not something that I would have thought ever said two years ago. Um, but just being a part of the, this community um, has been incredible. Um, but again, you know, don't just get rid of everything that you've done in the past and or studied or, um, you know, really just apply it. And again, you know, I, with political science, I worked in Washington, D.C., and uh, being a part of that was uh, an eye-opener that, you know, there's not a lot of technology in, in you know, Washington, D.C. in terms of politicians who are, you know, actively creating policies that are changing, you know, um, emerging tech. So I, that opened my eyes that now I'm applying to, you know, to, to my company. So um, just, you know, focus in on what you're passionate about and, uh, you know, really, uh, really silence everyone around you who's telling you don't do it. That's really well said, actually. So I'm uh, a little older. I might look young, but I've worked for 20 years in industry, and I had a computer science background, and I found myself pigeoned into what I went to school for should be what I should be passionate for, should be what I earn and make a living from. And it took a while to say that those things actually shouldn't overlap. When you go to school and you're 18, that's because you're curious and looking to learn. Going to school to then say, I'm going to do that job for the rest of my life is attaching yourself to one story narrative that you have to now reinforce and tell for the rest of your life. Whereas I like to say, hey, I'm going to be a lifelong learner and I'm going to be curious about a whole bunch of things and education is stacked and changing and I'm just going to keep learning and growing. And so the narrative I get to say is I'm a lifelong learner and I'm just looking to help people. So it's helped me move from being a developer to an architect to a project manager to a product manager to a startup co-founder. And I've never had to dismiss my comp sci background or my developer background. Those are just additive story pieces to the story I'm telling. And probably where I'm going with that is I don't actually know what I'm going to do three to five years from now. And I'm not going to let my undergrad degree hinge me to that kind of narrative. So I'm one of those weird people that is actually working in the field that you went to school for. Um, but, I mean, our creative director is a journalism major, self-taught designer, and one of our copywriters didn't even go to school yet. She had six years of business experience by the time she started working for me at 20, which is insane. Um, I'm having this conversation with my kids right now. Is college even necessary? Do they have to get a degree? Um, how much harder will you have to work if you don't want it? My eight-year-old is like, I'm not going to college. I'm like, okay, well, you're eight, but, you know, like, We'll figure this out together, but I'm also not going to force him to do it. You know, if he's willing to put in the work to train himself and go a different route to get where he wants to go, I'm open to that. And also, he'll be an adult, so it'll totally be up to him. Expand on that. Is college worth it? Is college worth it? Well, I went to college for seven years, got my bachelor's degree, then my MBA. Um, it was worth it in starting the company to me because it helped me get those initial clients. I had the credibility of having that MBA. On the flip side, I have employees and other people ask me, should I go get an MBA? And I'm like, no, probably not. Um, because I, again, like, it taught me how to work hard. It taught me how to be very structured with what I'm doing. It helped me understand how to run a business, but I'm not using anything I learned in practice. Um, school, to me, education has not caught up to what we're actually doing today. 
Um, they're still teaching the four P's in marketing class, and we are so far beyond that. It's insane. So once colleges start teaching the things that we are really using today in each field, then I would probably encourage my kids to go to college. So I'll play devil's advocate and say, um, I, so I went to school for four years, well, five years, but it was a four-year degree. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, college helped me. Um, and I think people uh, still is as crappy of a, uh, as it is that, that the world sees degrees as, uh, as a level of authority. It's the reality of the world today. Um, so as much as we would like... I have more to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, it, you know, the... Um, so, like, you know, investors look at your degrees, uh, even a potential employees are looking at your degrees saying, who is this person, why, why do they think they have credibility here? Um, so it helps for credibility, but also it helps for, you know, networking. But, you know, that's, it's not to say college is worth it for everybody. You get what you put into it, and it's not worth it maybe for every degree. Uh, entrepreneurship is a jack-of-all-trades industry. So uh, it's not to say you can't succeed in entrepreneurship without a degree. I, don't, I think it's completely irrelevant. It's just a different, depending on what path of entrepreneurship you go down. But I think value, I'll go on the other side, the Jackie side, and say, at the end of the day, value comes in all shapes and sizes. And, uh, and I think we're all kind of smart enough in this room to challenge the status quo and say, uh, you know, we went to college and, and we didn't use a, a lick of it. <laughs> but from my experience, the people I met in college, um, the entrepreneurship group, Brian, Ilya, Nathaniel in the UWM Entrepreneurial Circle, for example, they connected us to this group and then they connected us to that group. So the, the networking was, at least from my perspective, the most helpful. I totally agree with you, and I also say don't spend twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to get letters after your name. You know, um, yes, you will have to work harder if you don't go to college. It was an easier path for me because I got my MBA. I also graduated with sixty some thousand dollars in student debt that I aggressively paid off for ten years. Where could I have been if I had taken that money and put it into a company? I don't know. I mean, again, it's easy for me to say because I went to school for seven years and am able to use that to my advantage. Yeah, I think college is worth it for, especially when you're 18, but I just want to make sure to say that, hey, it doesn't have to hold you to what you went to school for. So maybe learning how to learn and learning how to be part of a community is a good outcome of college, and you could get that from studying, look at all our backgrounds, marketing, comp sci, you know, all the arts to maths and sciences, but we all found a way to use that to move our careers forward in the right way that was for us. That and you're not restricted to the books and the paperwork, right? Like you have the ability to go to college and do something that maybe you're not going to be doing for the rest of your life, but you're able to build those connections, build those bridges to relationships that can take you any direction that you really want to go in life. Moving on from that topic, because that is kind of sometimes a heated one, would you say that business life and personal life or business life development and personal development go hand in hand, or how do you operate? You can take that as well as a work-life balance type of question. I'll take this. Uh, I absolutely think so. Um, to Jackie's earlier point, don't don't forego sleep. That will catch up with you in your business life. All those things. I mean, we're a, we're a, uh, we're a human being. You know, we we can't separate our work from our personal, um, especially the millennial generation. So we're we're learning with our our company, most of our company employees are remote, and the whole idea of work-life balance is just awful. Because nobody wants to go in the office at nine and clock out at five, even if they don't have any work to do. 
they want to come in when they have to work, leave when they don't have to work, and if they have to work at 9 p.m. and, and open up their laptop after their kids go to bed, that's fine too. So the, the idea of work-life balance, I think we need to get, throw that out of the window and say, you know, what really matters is work-life har harmony, that, that you can go have lunch with your kids or go, uh, you know, on a date in the afternoon and, and still be able to get your work done. Um, but also, uh, just more deeply, uh, you know, the, the you, people follow you and being a, an entrepreneur, if you get traction, uh, people are following your lead as a leader and they want to make sure that you're put together, that you're getting sleep, that you're, you're not going to go sporadic one day. So you got to be consistent, diligent, and, and people follow your lead. So if you're saying that it's okay to, uh, you know, you know, just, um, not get sleep three hours a night for, for a couple of weeks, um, your employees are going to kind of follow that lead potentially. So it's a, it's a, um, exponential effect. The more you take care of yourself, the, the better your business is, the better, the happier your employees are, the more productive they are. Uh, so I absolutely believe, uh, you can't take the person, personal life out of the work life. And, and it's foolish for us to try to separate the two. And uh, it's actually amazing how personal development is actually almost superior to professional development. So I went and got you know, certain certifications and they were professional development items. But the best development professionally I had was when I had personal development. So building skills of empathy and being able to listen first instead of jumping in and solutioning. Those types of personal skills help me better communicate with my wife and kids but actually make me way better at the office and talking to customers and employees. So I actually say if you keep personally developing, you're naturally going to get better professionally as well. I think the word balance is bullshit, and I think we should honestly stop saying it. Um, and I will play devil's advocate with you again. I feel like I was put here to argue with you today. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's really important to take care of yourself, but also that looks different to everyone. Right, so some people, their work week is 35 hours and that's what they wanna put in. They really value efficiency and they can get every, everything done. Some people, their work week is 60 hours and that's what, like I like to put in a lot of hours. Um, I believe it makes me move faster and people are always telling me I'm gonna burn out. Now I've reached that point of burnout, I've been in that place and it is absolutely horrible, but now I've reached you know, that space where I really feel like I, you know, I know how to take care of myself and what I need. Um, so it's, it's kind of a personal choice for everyone, I think. <laughs> What's one skill or trait or resource that has most benefit, benefited you building your company or your brand? So while we're all thinking about that one. I did send them these questions in <laughs> advance, but... <laughs> we didn't read them. It's fine. This is a nice, tough one. Um, listening has always been a skill that I've actively worked on, and I think you can always be a better listener. Um, not just hearing what people say, but understanding the context, intonation, the tone, the motivation about what they're saying and why they're saying it, and pulling that out of people. So. Active listening means hearing what they're saying and probing deeper and asking the tougher question, you know, things like five whys and getting to the core of the matter. All of those things are built around being an active listener and I just don't think that skill set is A, taught enough and B, uh, refined enough. So just, I, I work on that every day and that's the one skill I think is the most important to building a consumer brand is listening to not just one type of consumer or your own echo chamber, but listening and actively engaging with a lot of different people. 
On that note, I actually just read a study that was put out by a software platform that records sales demos and analyzes the habits of the most effective salespeople. And it said that the salespeople that talk the most are the least effective and the salespeople that talk the least are the most effective. Because really, it's all about listening, asking questions, making people know that you understand them. Um, and it's very important. So I totally agree with you. Yeah, my, my wife was right. I needed to get better at listening. That, um, she knows best. Uh, no, I think it all depends uh, on the person and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, everybody says, go learn how to code. That might not be right for you. You know, you might be a really great salesperson. You don't need to learn how to code if you're a great salesperson. Um, and so, you know, definitely uh, to your point that the um, human skills or have been, at least for me personally, the most impactful uh, because I'm, I'm starting to appreciate the idea of, of leading teams rather than um, like uh, uh, hacking code together or building products. Um, but that's just what, what I care about. You know, some people might actually like being you know, a closed door, hacking out code all day long, and that's fine too. So, uh, you know, I think skills, you have to see what, what do you actually enjoy doing, and, you know, it sounds cheesy, but follow your passion, and, uh, and, and you'll do better work. Yeah, for, for, I, I love your point about how it is really personal, and, you know, a, a trait or a skill that, you know, another employee that picks up is, might not work for you. For me, it was definitely about being comfortable with adapting, um, adapting in terms of your personal development and also, you know, shifting your company in a different direction and being comfortable with doing that. I think that's something that I learned and, uh, and that's been really helpful. When we're, I mean, this isn't a skill, but a trait, being resilient and getting thick skin. Ten years ago, I did not have the thick skin that I have now. We actually, so we lost a client yesterday. It was not a good fit client, and I had a feeling we would likely lose them at some point. I just didn't know it was going to happen yesterday. And a member of my team texted me and said, how long do I get to be sad about this? Because I feel like I got dumped. And it, I, I mean, and I was like, well, it's not you, it's them. But um, I was like, you know, the more we go through stuff like this, the more resilient we can get. And you have to look at the clients that you still have or that we still have are the ones that really love working with us, they trust the process, they respect our opinions, they know that we have the experience. And this client didn't have those traits and they weren't a good fit. And getting to the point 10 years later, you know, into my professional career where I can sit through a meeting like that, negotiate the end of the contract and say, all right, great, you know, like we'll wrap this up and now onward um, is so important. Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback off that and say, if, if your goal is to be an entrepreneur and to have a startup, um, persistence is probably the, the most defining key of that. Um, it, you know, if you, if you look at it, I always like to say, if you look at it from an investor perspective, they say one out of 10 is gonna be a home run, uh, right? So if you play the numbers, just start 10 different startups. If, if one fails, start another one, start another one. Start. Now, rea in reality, who has the resilience and persistence to actually do that? And, and hopefully, if you're lucky, you, you hit it by your third, fourth, or fifth. Um, but everyone is exhausting. Everybody here is probably has that one scar under their belt of the startup before the one they're doing now. Uh, and they, they think, and just picture yourself with this startup failing um, and, uh, and think to yourself, if it failed, would I actually get back up and try the startup thing again? So rather than being so held to a certain idea, um, I like to uh, tell people to or advise to be held to entrepreneurship in general. Because your ideas might come and go, but the, the entrepreneurial path um, it's just a numbers game, uh, and persistence is the key there. 
question to all of you. How do you how did you know, you know, whether it was the first company you built that that wasn't going the direction that you wanted it, and then you stepped away from, from that that venture? When did you guys know? Cash. cash. <laughs> Running out of money. The cash tends to speak pretty loudly in the entrepreneurship world. If you're not making money, it's a hobby. I mean, working in the food business was so hard. Um, it's, I honestly like blocked that part of my life out. I could hardly even remember all of it. Um, so, I mean, I just didn't, I didn't really like it. I think since then, I have learned to not love building the exact kind of company, but love the process. And I think that I could love anything that I do from here forward because I love the process of building a company, um, having a dedicated team, hiring and training people. So if I had the cookie company again, I might actually like it now. I don't know. Cash is a good indicator, um, but I also set the goals for the first few startups way too wildly out there, so I don't think I ever set them up to be successful. So the only outcome was to, in essence, fail. Whereas this time around it was, let me take smaller bite-sized goals and achieve more of those faster, and success just continues to compound afterwards. So um, what I learned out of that really was that resilience is key, but making something that's achievable and that I can actually get to uh, was kind of the key win on that one. I know you have a question about failure and getting up, so I don't know if I want to go into that just yet, but... I don't know if I'm going to get to every single question, so may not. Um, so this is my first business, and I think since I can't attest to the other side, I think what I'll say about learning is that you have to adapt. You know, video and what we do is something that changes. The story element changes. What people like on social media changes. Not weekly, not monthly, daily, hourly. So adapting and being okay with trying something out and knowing that it's probably not going to hit, like you're, you know, you were saying, you know, one to 10 for us, that's kind of like the content side, you know, like not every video is going to hit home with everybody. And we know that. So knowing what we're trying to achieve in reverse engineering, what that creates has been pretty important for us. I do want to leave some time for Q&A, so I will ask one final question, and that is, let's just answer the, the headline of this panel. What don't they tell you about building a company or a brand? anything and who is they you know like you can read all the articles in the world and you'll never be prepared for jumping out and starting a company um, because it's different every single day and I think the most important thing is the ability to figure it out um, google it you know you come up with an answer you can ask people but whatever it may be um, you have to just be able to kind of run on the fly and figure things out I'll step in. <laughs> yeah, so for me, it is that anything can happen, right? I left a job, took less money, didn't get paid as often, and immediately after starting a company, my dad developed cancer. He's okay, he's fine, but I did not anticipate that. My dad was doing tough mutters, he was a healthy son of a gun, like, never in my life would I have anticipated that he would have gotten cancer. And going through that process, developing the empathy with the team and building just the relationships and the rapport with everybody that I surrounded myself with was critical. So for me, it's that anything can happen at any time and it's probably not gonna be good. Yeah, I feel like everything we read about um, around entrepreneurship is always celebrating the big things. So you hear about the raise or the fact that someone's a unicorn or they made a ton of money. But what they, whoever they are, don't tell you is that every one of those people to get to that celebration 
put in a ton of hard work, failed, suffered, struggled, fought. All those words that sound like defeatist kind of negative words, but in fact are positive motivators. And what we need to celebrate is the fact that it's that daily grind and that the Series C is just an outcome of that grind or the, the stock options or the IPO listing is an outcome of that and not the thing to be celebrated, but the hard work and the grind and the persistence and all these words we've used today are actually the things that we should be talking about. So they don't tell you that all of us, everyone in the room here, has to and will and you know endure those types of activities to get to that outcome. I would say, sorry, people, people are starting to talk about that now too, right? Like people on, follow the people on social media that are telling the real story. Did, you, did any of you, I don't know if Kelly Fitzsimmons has spoken yet, I know she's speaking here this weekend, her book Lost in Startuplandia is all about the, the successes and all the stuff that she screwed up along the way. So I would say take in those messages. Yeah, I, I would just say you're not alone in any of this. You know, we've all been through this, um, many of you as well. Uh, it is tough. It's very tough. Um, you know, there is no perfect entrepreneur who, who does it the right way and doesn't you know, bump into those challenges. Um, but, you know, again, you are not alone in this, making sure you're, um, you're constantly immersing yourself in the community who are also going through the same struggles and kind of learning from their experiences, applying it to yourself. But, again, you are not alone in that. I just want to add what both of you said, and I'm going to quote kind of in credit Mark Metry on this one. Uh, he said something on LinkedIn where it's like, uh, if you just buckle down and quietly go and do your own thing, uh, that's not the way startups and entrepreneurs should run these days. In fact, it should be go out and share your message, your struggles, because you'd be surprised who comes out and wants to join and help you to be successful. As a social beings, we all want to help, you know, provide value that makes us feel good, but help others succeed. So documenting that story, documenting those failures and sharing it helps other people come to your rescue. So... Conversely, going away into a back room and coding for 40 years to build the perfect product is definitely not the way to do it, especially as we head into a more social media-driven society. I struggled with this one, uh, but I'll, uh, so I won't answer your question, but I'll piggyback what he's saying, uh, which is, yeah, getting yourself out there, putting yourself out of your comfort zone. You know better than anybody the, the emotional energy of, of getting out there in front of people. But the payoff is every time I've done it, just like this panel, you know, I, I, I don't know who here might, you know, I might be talking to in five years from now, um, but you might be on the same journey I'm on in five years from now. You know, so getting out there and, and having people know what you're about, what you care for, what you stand for, um, and, and being honest and transparent, you might not, you know, uh, everybody you talk to might not agree with you, and that's just like selling to uh, customers, you know, you might... You have to talk to 100 people, and you don't want to force every 100 person to buy your product if it's not a good fit. You want to make it a numbers game and find those 10 people who it would be a great fit for and double down on those. Um, so getting yourself out there, I'll agree, is super important. And with that, I think I'll leave it up to Q&A. So I'll step down, and you guys can come up and grab the mic and ask these guys a question. But show of hands, does anybody have a question that they would like to ask our panelists today? If not, I can keep going, but we've got a few, so I'll step down and let you guys ask. Yanni, this is for you. Um, I was reading your bio before this, and I wanted to know, do you have any um, inspiration or wisdom based off of like the Elizabeth Holmes scandal with uh, Theranos? Have, have you had any problems with that with regards to your credibility in the field? 
Yeah, so kind of uh, when we did all our investor pitches, that was the first question is how are you not there? No, so you're talking small volume blood testing and healthcare versus sick care. So uh, the first three pitches went bad because I wasn't prepared, and but I'm glad I got out there and learned that that's the narrative. It's not what I thought the narrative would be, which is we're trying to help consumers be proactive in healthcare. So I had to address that, learn, fail a few times, come up with a narrative, and we kind of jokingly said, we should name our startup Anti-Theranos LLC. But the takeaway from that was we I got very good at learning what they did wrong and not the manipulative side of things, but some of the transparency things, uh, transparency items. So we pivoted to say, hey, we're gonna be transparent, we're gonna have third-party doctors, we're gonna do all these things that became kind of the Anti-Theranos playbook. And sure enough, actually, investors latched onto that and kind of, I got uh, emails back that said, hey, love that name, Anti-Theranos. In a nutshell, summarizes what you're about, which goes back to the core message, which is trying to do well by our patients and consumers. So the mission was always the same. I got distracted by this Theranos story, but I put it right back into our mission about being patient-oriented, and transparency was the key response to that. So, and now it's not an issue. We're going through the same thing with WeWork. So this is a question for everybody. Um, a lot of times people equate like being busy with being successful, um, especially in school. People are like, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm so busy. Like that's supposed to be a good thing. And so when you talk about like the grind never stops or I'm so busy, I'm wondering how you guys kind of like combat that and show that busy doesn't necessarily mean successful, if that makes sense. I'm super guilty of be, just being very busy and overcommitting myself and overbooking myself. So I, that's like how I operate my life. And then sometimes I will sit back and say, like, I've been really busy all day, but I haven't done anything of real worth to, you know, like I'm moving the pieces and I'm reacting, but I'm busy. So um, back to John Saratsky, his book, Make Time, that was a really good eye opener for me. Like, rescheduling and I'm still really busy but I've blocked off my time and tried to really reserve time to like do the things that are important to me and even talking about you know like my team's always like oh I don't want to bother you you're so busy and I'm like I have time for you you know and like reiterating that message I think definitely helps making time and clearing time and blocking time for non-work activities helps you actually be less busy there's like I, use, I live by this one line, like, less is more. And every time I find myself doing too much, I always try to find a way to do less of it. Like, there's too many meetings, chop the meetings. If I'm too many phone calls, chop those. And just always pull back and make sure I get those personal hours that I can get and clear my mind on. When I get busy is the moment I know i got to step away from being busy. I'm very similar in that I thrive in the busy work and in the chaos of it all. Um, and it wasn't really until I stepped back from that and I had a moment of reflection of, you know, the last few months or last week of being busy in this chaotic world, I, I wasn't being productive. So um, just, just take a moment to really step back, kind of look and analyze it and, and really reflect on, on how you use your time. Yeah, I'll be argumentative and agree with Jackie and say I don't see a problem with being busy. <laughs> that's That's... Part of the nature of the, the job, to a certain extent, as long as you're, you have enough time for the things that really matter. I think it comes down to, though, when you wear it like a badge of honor, and you're like, oh, hustle all day and all night, and no team, no sleep, and I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, all that shit that you hear, and you're like, this is absolute nonsense. 
Um, so it's being busy is good and it, for some people, but I think on the flip side, when you wear it like a badge of honor and you tell other people that that's how they must operate, that's when it's a problem. Like I wrote an Instagram caption on this last weekend because I had planned to do all this work last weekend and I did nothing actually. I like hung out with my friends, I hung out with my family, I went to a wedding and I chilled and it was great. And then I wrote a caption and was like, hey, I was gonna work and then I did nothing all weekend and it's actually okay to take a break and I was almost writing the caption as much to tell myself that as I was to tell my audience that. Um, so I think just talking about that and being transparent is good. And from my perspective, it's kind of, I like to reverse engineer it. So the calendar says what you should be doing, but we recently started tracking our time within our company and that tells us what we're actually doing. So for us, it's more of where is your time actually going? Can you optimize it? Does it need to be there? And what can you do to make positive changes to be more efficient with your time so that you get more time to be what is less busy? Any other questions? Yeah, I have a curiosity question. Uh, a lot of the 10Xers, a lot of the entrepreneurs, a lot of the individuals that are very successful that I've met, uh, they ritualize certain parts of their day or they ritualize certain things before certain events. You know, they either have that perfect morning where every morning they do X, Y, and Z, or before they meet a client, they have you know, X, Y, Z things that they always do to get themselves into the right mindset. What do you guys do to ritualize, to make sure that you have the right mindset and you're ready to do the thing you need to do at the highest possible level? I'm, I'm a big believer in visualization. Um, you Subconsciously, if you, if you look at, I think you have to, like, uh, I don't think people care enough about their subconscious mind and, and the power it has and the idea of, of rereading the same thing on the same piece of paper every morning when you wake up, um, it has a habit of just coming true. Uh, and so uh, I think that's just the reality of, of nature and, and I think it's something to, to embrace. And, and uh, people do that in business, people do that in personal life. I think it works in both. I've gotten so uh, so... Uh, rigid about it in my personal life that I even have personal Q3 goals right now. I just wiped out my Q or wiped out my Q3 goals and now I'm on to my Q4 goals because my mind now thinks in terms of quarters because of the business world. And so I, I translate that into my personal life. So um, yeah, I, I couldn't uh, couldn't uh, agree with visualizations as a means to achieving goals more enough. I've always thought that I needed a ritual, you know, like, oh, perfect morning is meditating and drinking your black pepper water, whatever people do, I have no idea. Um, I have just have found what works for me, right? So I started doing this thing called future self journaling, where you answer six quick questions every morning and you say, like, where do I want to be in the future? What am I going to do today to get myself there? It's a three-minute activity, and that's something I've been able to keep up with. I like to listen to podcasts to get myself in the right mindset. Like Lori Harder talks a lot about um, just her different struggles and the things that you have to do to get in the right place. I like to do things like that. But I think you have to do whatever works for you, right? I've tried so many times to have like a ritual and a routine, and it just it hasn't stuck, so I kind of gave up. Yeah, there's no one-size-ritual-fits-all, but the one if you know yourself, for me, it's mountain biking. As long as I can get out and ride a couple days in a week to just, like, see some trees, avoid hitting a rock and crashing, and just not thinking about work and these thousands of tasks and negative social media posts i got to respond to helps me just get grounded back into why I'm doing what I'm doing. And sometimes it's a Sunday night ride or a Tuesday morning ride, but i just got to get out and do it. 
Yeah, for me, I, I used to have a routine and a plan, and sometimes when it didn't go the right way, my whole day would kind of be ruined. So I kind of stepped away from that. For me, really, it's just having stepping away from that, kind of silencing, and um, really moment of reflection kind of at the end of each day, but that's what I've done. And for me, it's about finding out what works for you personally. Like, like people mentioned, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. So for me, it's finding out when I, I like to wake up early and go to work early and leave early. So it's when am I most productive? What am I doing with that time? And what is the most important work that I can do in that time to optimize everything else in that day? So kind of starting out the day off right, I mean, that's kind of a given, but also finding out what you're best doing at what times of the day and optimizing your schedule to kind of reflect that. Can I, can I take a, just a moment to tell a joke? Because I think we all agree Please, on this. Yeah. I, was, I was reading on Twitter, it said the average CEO reads 42 books, does yoga, meditates, you know, drinks these green tea, pepper waters. And then someone commented under and said, yeah, that's why they're average. So. That's a good point. Any other questions? So you've been talking about like how you're always productive or um, trying to avoid busy work or anything like that. But what do you use to manage your production? What do you use for like scheduling your daily um, activities, um, making sure that you're not procrastinating on this one event that you're doing? What is it that you guys use in order to keep up with your days and your activities? I have systems on systems for this. So. I should be making money from Todoist, T-O-D-O-I-S-T, download it. It's $39 a year. You can plan out everything you want to do in the day. You can put um, an emphasis like by color, and you can organize them by what you want to get done and when. Um, it is the best tool. I always say if it's not in that tool, I don't do it. I, I like disagreeing with Jackie, apparently, so I'm going to take the other approach and say... Um, I have tried all of those workers, Todoist, all of the digital task organizers, and my brain doesn't work unless it's on paper. So I have a journal that I take with me everywhere. I do it at my morning ritual. I take it to meetings with me and write down notes. I, I, it's where I literally cross off my to-do list stuff. Uh, so I have my, every week I have a different weekly task list kind of thing, but then in the very back I have like my big goals. So every day I kind of remind myself of what are those big goals. and then. Let me bring it back down to reality. So for me, it has to be on paper or else it's, it's not there. When I write stuff on paper, then I put it in my backpack and find it six weeks later, and I'm like, oh, cool. No. So, you know, it's whatever works for you, right? A hundred percent. So I have a whiteboard that has my, like, big mission goal, like what am I trying to get done this quarter or this big block of time. Uh, I use a little bit of, like, a JIRA tool to help the team understand what we're doing on a monthly or weekly basis. But I actually send myself a daily email in the morning. I kind of just use Gmail's draft, and I kind of have this like daily thing that I'm hoping to get done, and it's like this growing, evolving checklist. So I guess I need to try a cooler tool that costs 39 bucks. But Gmail's, it kind of helps me know what success looks like for that day, because otherwise I'll just stay up all night trying to hit some random success measure. So. Yeah, I'm, I write everything down, too. I'm the same way. Um, just that That's really, I've tried all the other systems for me. It just hasn't worked, um, but it does work for some of my employees. So, um, you know, I let them kind of have their own systems. If, if that's how you're going to stay on top of those tasks, then use that. Um, just really do what works for you. For me, it's post-it notes. There's nothing more satisfying than taking that task and ripping it in half and throwing it in the garbage. That's just how I operate. Well, time for one more. You got a question? 
So I had a question, again, on that like productivity wave, but more about bouncing between different tasks throughout the day. And I think especially like Gabby, you as a student, bouncing between like a class and then like running your business or like going to work or whatever that might look like. How do you shift your mindset throughout the day so that you can give your all into those, those different tasks and activities? I'm still working on that. I it's it's hard to have an on and off switch. You know, I'll be in work and you know work, doing schoolwork, and then I'll be in class and you know checking my emails. I'm it, it's something that I'm still working on. I try to group like tasks together. So like I try to reserve my morning for work time, whatever I need to do, sitting at my computer. I try to take all of my meetings in the afternoon. I get home and I'm with my kids and I'm doing nothing else from 5.30 or 6 until they go to bed at 8.30 and then I usually work a little bit more. And so it's very like blocked and structured. I have found, I always thought that the cost of switching was like nonsense. I was like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm super productive. Um, no, actually it really, it like takes a long time to get back into work when you're in and out of meetings and you have these little like slots open all day. So. I am super protective of my calendar and my time. Uh, for me, it's all about environment. So if I'm going to be doing something social, be like where people are chatting in the office or be at a coffee shop or something like that, if I'm going to be just burying my head into a spreadsheet, uh, just lock myself in the office. If I'm going to be talking on the phone to somebody, I go on a walk. I, like, you, if my laptop's not there in front of me, I can laser focus on that person that I'm talking to. Um, so the environment certainly, I think, it's, helps me focus wherever my focus needs to go. But, uh, I was just say, I'm with Jackie on this one. If somebody tells me that I got to do some financials, then I'm going to try and do all that financial stuff in that hour time, and so that at least for that day, that type of thinking is done. And then if the next one is going into a social media plan or calendar for the week, or then I'm going to try and do all that and get the hot potatoes off my plate to get the team going on those, and so I can kind of like finish that thought topic if it gets put onto my plate. For me, it's about transitions. So I just finished reading the book High Performance Habs, which is a fantastic book, and he talked in the book about transitioning from one space to the next, one task to the next. So before I start anything or go anywhere, I ask myself, what's the task at hand? Who's important in this situation? What's going on around me in the room? And I just analyze things so that I'm not just going from task to task to task to task to task, but I'm letting myself stop and analyze what's going on, who's here, what's important, so I can then, as it, a lot of people were also reflecting, put every ounce of that effort into that task, so then it's just kind of a caliper effect. You do it all in a very short period of time, and then you let yourself read, and then so on. So thank you, everybody. Thank you guys for being on the panel with me. This, as I forgot to prelude to before we started, is also going to be a Strange On Purpose podcast episode, so feel free to check it out on your favorite podcasting streams and devices when that comes up as well. But thank you all for being a part of the panel. Thank you for being on the panel. Um, I would like to get a photo with you all as well before we wrap up here. But thanks for all coming, everybody. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, guys. Thank you.